Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. The primary for the first congressional district race is just weeks away, and the Democratic winner is very likely to become our next representative in Congress. But with 12 Democrats running, who can keep track? Our own Steph Machado and Jim Hummel from A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS are here to give us some perspective after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Jim Hummel, host of A Lively Experiment on Rhode Island PBS, and my Globe Rhode Island colleague, Steph Machado. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks for having us. Great to be here, Ed. For those just tuning in from Scarborough, (laughs) remind us how many candidates are running in the Democratic primary race and who they are. Let me list them for you. In alphabetical order, we have Gabe Amo, Stephanie Beauty, Walter Berbrick, Sandra Cano, Don Carlson, Stephen Casey, Spencer Dickinson, John Gonsalves, Sabina Matos, Anna Cazada, Aaron Regenberg, and Alan Waters. All right. So that's Steph, a hefty list. That's a, that is a long list, unprecedented. Steph, help us put this in some kind of framework. Of those 12, who would you say the most liberal or progressive and who's the most conservative? Yeah. So I think Aaron Regenberg is getting the cred as the most progressive in the race, but there are you know other people who count themselves as progressive, such as Sandra Cano. And then there's a lot of people in the middle, I would say, sort of a, a, a classic Democrat, perhaps a moderate Democrat, like Sabina Mott. Perhaps a Gabe Amo. And then on the more conservative side, there's Alan Waters, who um, has, you know, run as a Republican in the past, but is running as a, a Democrat this year. And September 5th, we're not only going to have a Democratic primary, we're also going to have a Republican primary. So who's in that stuff? So on the Republican side, there are two candidates, Jerry Leonard, who's the endorsed candidate, a Marine Corps veteran from Jamestown, and Terry Flynn, who's a former town council person from Middletown. But Jim, how likely is it that the next member of Congress from Rhode Island is going to be 
whoever wins that Democratic primary. If you were a betting man, there's no way you would put any money on it. And look, it's a it's a very liberal congressional district. Look at what Alan Fung did with all of his backing in the CD2 race in a conservative district, and he still couldn't beat Seth Magaziner. So the, the odds and the dynamic is much different in CD1. You want some stats? Sure. So- only 12% of the 1st Congressional District is are registered Republicans, according to the Secretary of State's office. 44% Democrats, 44% unaffiliated. And, of course, the unaffiliated voters can choose to vote in either primary. But this district went very, very heavily for Joe Biden in the presidential election, if that says anything. The other person I would add in on the moderate side is Stephen Casey. Casey is is trying to navigate. He has, although he's known in the state house, he doesn't have a lot beyond that in terms of name recognition. But for people who don't want to see so progressive, there are some conservative people, believe it or not, Ed, in CD1 that, you know, he would be speaking to. Well, and I think something that we've talked about ever since Casey got in is that, you know, if there were two or three candidates in this race, he would have no chance of winning in this district because of his stance on abortion rights and gun rights in the primary, I should say, because the district is more leaning to the left. But with 12 candidates and you can win with so few votes, he's always sort of been a factor because there is a conservative faction of the district that may want to go for him. He is different from the other Democrats. But he's yeah, an anomaly because he's a union guy who is speaking to the business community. Yes, he's got firefighter support. He's the only candidate from one socket. And so there's a number of factors that make him a, a serious candidate. But how many voters in a Democratic primary, especially in CD1, are going to be conservative Democrats? Aren't progressives more of a factor on September 5th? Yeah. I think for sure. I think candidates are jockeying to be the most progressive, to get the progressive endorsements, especially from some of the the high profile progressive lawmakers, Tierra Mack, Sam Bell, you know, everyone was sort of competing for who is going to get some of these endorsements, the Rhode Island Working Families Party. We even saw a fight. They endorsed Aaron Regenberg and Sandra Cano actually sent out a press release complaining that she hadn't gotten the endorsement, pointing to her own progressive cred, so to speak. So certainly that's where we've seen the most jockeying, not not who can appeal to the conservatives. But that's why I think that Regenberg and Matos are perceived as the front runners, because Regenberg has that that rock solid progressive support on the east side. Also ran a, a pretty spirited campaign, almost picked off Dan McKee for lieutenant governor. But Sabina Matos is the only one who has won and won recently a statewide organization. So when it comes to boots on the ground, all you have to do is go to your database and your donor and say, okay, now let's let's go to them. And I mean, what do you think, Ed? 10,000 people could win it? Yeah, 10, yeah. 000? I mean, less, people saying 10,000 in a low turnout special election. How many votes is it going to take to win this thing? I don't know, but I, so I just looked at last year's CD2 race. Do you race. have some more stats stuff? I have more, st- <laughs> I'm full of stats. Stats match. So, so last year, which was a regular election, so there was, you know, people were going to the polls to vote for governor and mayor and ballot questions and everything else. 56,000 people voted in the CD2 Democratic primary. So I think it's going to be substantially less for a special election off-year Democratic primary. So I, I don't know. I think I think you could win with 8,000, 7,000. It just depends on how spread out the votes are. We're talking about endorsements, boots on the ground. Who's been getting the endorsements that come with those valuable volunteers to go out there and knock on doors, to stuff envelopes, to make phone calls? Jim, who, who do you see getting those really see, good endorsements? We see Sabina Matos getting a lot of endorsements, but it comes from a lot of out-of-state groups. I have seen some union endorsements here, but I've also seen some union endorsements not go her way, too. You know, with the union endorsements, it just depends on 
just saying we support this candidate is not enough. It depends on how many people they're going to put out on the ground, knocking doors, making phone calls, putting actual effort in for that candidate. So we saw, you know, Sandra Cano has both of the state's teachers unions backing her. Sabina that Matos, that yep, Sabina Matos has union endorsements. I believe Cano also has the nurses union. The Rhode Island AFL-CIO decided not to endorse because uh, its member unions weren't able to reach a consensus. And also the state Democratic Party did not endorse. What does that tell you? I think it shows a little bit of weakness for Matos because she's the only statewide office holder in the race. I think if the Democratic Party were to endorse, it might have been for her. She's the governor's hand-picked lieutenant governor, and he is not endorsing either. So the governor hasn't said who he's going to back in this race? No, he hasn't. But don't you think that's a smart move? If he doesn't endorse her and then she winds up not winning, they got to show up to a lot of press conferences together the next two years. It's a little awkward. So some of the frontrunners have run into controversy. Steph, how much damage has been done to Matos by the criminal investigation and potentially fraudulent signatures on her nomination papers? I think there's been damage done, um, especially, you know, it's summer and not a lot of news from this campaign is necessarily permeating with voters. So they're getting home from the beach, turning on the news and seeing signature scandal, they might not be paying that much attention to the details and and who's at fault. And frankly, we're not going to have all the answers before the primary. The attorney general has said that it's going to take longer than that to complete the criminal investigation. To be clear, she's on the ballot. The Board of Elections double-checked the signatures, determined she had way more than the 500 that you need to be on the ballot. But that doesn't give us an explanation of what happened in her campaign to cause these allegedly fraudulent signatures to be on the paper work. She has blamed a vendor and said that she's a victim. I do think that this whole scandal thrust the campaign into the public spotlight. It was a snooze fest before this happened. And so there's more and more news stories on a daily basis about it. The debates are happening now. So maybe people are tuning in and, you know, I say like, all publicity is good publicity. I don't actually think that's true, but at least people are paying attention to the race. And she has the opportunity when everyone's asking her about her signature problems to talk about why the voters should elect her. But you also got to wonder who's running her campaign? Who are her advisors? One, they hired this woman, you know, who got the fraudulent signatures. So nobody was fired. Nobody was disciplined that we know. They fired her. Yeah. They yeah. Said they well, let they, her right. Out. But I mean, right. the campaign manager is ultimately responsible yes, for he's still what's there. in the weeds. Yep. Then they bring in this congressman from New York who basically insults all of the media at a press gaggle earlier, calls her a victim and only because she's a woman of color. Brian Crandall from Channel 10, to his credit, and Kate Nagel from Go Local, you know, really pressed them like, look, we have dead people who have been on signatures. We're not manufacturing this. Aaron Regenberg's also run into controversy over a super PAC that's pouring tens of thousands of dollars in uh, helping his campaign. And it turns out it's funded by his father-in-law and his mother. So, Jim, do you think voters accept his explanation that he didn't coordinate with that super PAC, uh, which would be prohibited? How do you think that Thanksgiving dinner is going to go, right? (laughs) (laughs) And he's been very strong about we need to eliminate all this outside money and then to accept it. And and then he felt he falls back on the, well, there's no coordination. I have no control over it. I think at this point they see any money coming in as as helpful because you can only raise so much in a short period of time. I think for the people who are paying attention, it looks disingenuous. But is that getting caught up in the weeds with those of us who pay a lot of attention to it? Is the average voter thinking about super PAC father-in-law Regenberg? Right. It's a little bit inside baseball in politics to know that Aaron Regenberg is someone who has denounced 
super PACs and outside spending on campaigns. And yet here he is not only getting outside money in his support, but it's from a family member. And so certainly a lot of people are going to be skeptical that he didn't know about it. What I will say is that I, I don't think that people in Regenberg land are super happy about the mailer that this outside group sent out that portrays him like as a Superman comic. I don't think he wants... Superhero, right? He's already being accused by some progressives of having like a white savior complex. And so I don't know that it was a super flattering image of him. Do you both have any sense of who's in the top tier right now, Jim? Well, I think it's clear you have Sabina Matos, you have Aaron Regenberg, Don Carlson's got a boatload of money. He's just gotten up with a TV ad. Gabe Amo has put out a couple of ads and he has really good social media presence. And Sandra Cano. She also put out that ad with her reading to her daughter. So clearly she's trying to, you know, reach the female uh, person of color, abortion rights, that type of thing. And so I think that's the upper tier. You see John Gonsalves, clearly, you know, city council member who is known within his district, how much he has district wide recognition. I don't know. But that's the upper tier. And that's I'm not breaking any news here. That's who you see on the air and who you see. I think, kind of dominating the conversation of people like us. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Jim that those are the top five that you just named. I don't think I could rank them, to be honest, without an independent poll showing us and who— how would you poll you, in this race? Well, I, I don't know because no one did. But, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's making it difficult to do debates because, as we know, it's not as valuable to have a debate— with a dozen people or nine or 10 people because you don't get to hear as much back and forth from the top candidates who have the best chance at winning. But without an independent poll, we're seeing, you know, organizers err on the side of inviting more candidates because they're not able to say, okay, well, you don't even have 5% of the vote, so you can't come. We don't know where everyone stands. And so the debates have been a little bit unwieldy in the sense that there's just so many candidates, you can't get through as many questions as you'd like. So seven of the 12 Democrats uh, running for this seat are black and or Latina, uh, making this the most diverse field to ever run for Congress in Rhode Island. So how much of a factor will race be in this race? I think it's a factor because Rhode Island has never sent a person of color to Congress and has never sent a Democratic woman to Congress. That's something that people want to see. I've heard voters tell me, I like Aaron Regenberg, but do we need four white guys in Congress? And so I think it's a factor. I don't think it's a number one factor for most voters. But, but it's a factor. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we heard the same thing. If I, if I was comparing it to maybe the uh, like Providence mayor's race last year, where there was a lot of talk about like, oh, it's time to have a woman mayor of Providence. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the woman who was in the race near Villa Fortune came in third because the voters didn't didn't, didn't see, see it. it. They didn't. They she wasn't the preferred candidate. So Jim, remind us when the early voting began and when the primary date is. Yes. Yeah, so August sixteenth was the day. Uh, Twenty days mm-hmm. in front of the primary, which is hard to believe. Twenty days. The clock is ticking, and then it's Tuesday, September fifth. All right, Jim, Steph, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. Last Friday, I brought Steph back into the studio to talk about the debate we moderated at Roger Williams University. So, Steph, we had a debate the other night at Roger Williams University, and the forums up until that point hadn't drawn a lot of distinctions. Did you see some daylight between the candidates who were on the stage the other night? Yes. When you and I were crafting the questions, Ed, we were really focusing in on areas where the candidates might disagree with each other because we know that they all care about education and housing and issues like that. And so, first of all, we we made them name their top priority because 
you cannot prioritize every single issue that you care about at the same time. And they all had different answers. We had Sabina Mato saying gun safety legislation was her top priority. Aaron Regenberg wants to take on corporate power. Uh, Sandra Cano said protecting democracy was her top priority. Um, a couple of the candidates, Ana Quezada and Don Carlson, said it was the environment and so on and so forth. We have all 10 on our website. But it, it was interesting to see the different issues that each candidate is considering to be the most important for them. We had some fireworks the other night, right? Right. Tell, tell us about what issues drew them out. Yeah, for sure. We had a section of the debate where you and I had asked the candidates about various criticisms of their campaigns. Of course, there's been the signature scandal for Matos and the super PAC issues for Regenberg. But we had various issues for every single candidate to ask about. And they were really jumping in and criticizing each other and going negative. Sabina Matos really went on the attack. She brought up issues that we had not even asked about. Yeah, um, one example there is she brought up an attack on Gabe Amo over his work as a lobbyist for Home Depot. Tell us about that and how he responded. Let's take a listen. But I never heard you talk about the work that you did as a lobbyist for Home Depot, which is an organization that we know has been funding anti-LGBTQ and women's rights and pro-Trump. How come you don't take credit for that? seems like the lieutenant governor's been waiting for this one for a while, but let, let's put it, let's make it clear. For five, maybe six months, I worked at the Home Depot to help build stores. Who spent a Saturday in Home Depot on this stage? I'm sure a lot of you have. They're buying things for your homes, building jobs. Why is she going after Gabe Amo, do you think? My initial reaction was, well, so what does her internal polling show about where Amo is, if she's considering him to be enough of a threat that she's actually bringing up in a debate uh, uh, something negative about him? You know, it did take up several minutes of back and forth. And then she also went after Aaron Regenberg. We had already had a, a big debate with multiple candidates about the super PAC that sent out mailers on his behalf that was funded by his father-in-law. Um, but she went to him and she said, well, did you have a red box on your campaign website? Right. Now tell us what red boxing is for those who have never heard that term. Yeah, this is super inside baseball political talk. But basically, because it's illegal for campaigns to coordinate with super PACs that spend on their behalf, since super PACs can spend unlimited money, they're not subject to campaign finance limits, candidates will sometimes put this overview section on their website that's signaling to outside groups, here's what we want you to talk about when you go out and you buy TV commercials or you send out mailers on our behalf. And it sort of allows them to not coordinate with the super PAC directly, although I think watchdog groups would argue it violates the spirit of that law. Um, and so she accused Aaron Regenberg of having a red box on his website that he later took down. He denied having a red box during the debate. And now the Matos campaign has filed an FEC complaint about this. So we'll see where that goes. And you, during the debate, asked Matos about the signature scandal. What did she say? Well, she did take responsibility for the fact that it happened. She's, you know, the leader of her campaign. So even though she's called herself a victim of this vendor who collected the um, signatures, you know, we still don't know exactly what happened. That's why they're, the attorney general is conducting a, a criminal investigation. And Mato said, you know, she wants to know just like everyone else. She did 
at one point suggest that maybe someone did this to her on purpose? Intentionally, yeah. And you asked her, were you suggesting it was another campaign? What did she say? And she said, well, I don't know who did it, but she introduced the idea that perhaps someone went and put these phony names on her forms as a way to discredit her. Another interesting point was when I asked the candidates if they couldn't vote for themselves, who on the stage would they vote for? Most of them answered the question. Can you give us some examples? This was my favorite part of the debate, Ed. Kudos to you for asking this awesome question. And I remember we talked about... What if they don't answer it? They oh, all yeah. re- it was like the Cicilline question. Nobody would nobody would criticize Cicilline, but they did answer this question. And I actually thought it really gave the audience a chance to see their personalities yeah. and see who maybe they best align with. You know, a, a couple of people said they would vote for Sandra Cano. A couple of people said they would vote for Ana Quesada. Aaron Regenberg said he would vote for Ana Quesada, and she has been attacking him more than anyone else. Yeah, he said he, uh, you have chutzpah. Our first Yiddish reference of the debate. John Gonsalves was one of the candidates who would not give an answer. He said, I want to write someone in. And the then audience tried the to audience get him to answer. was groaning at him. <laughs> and then so he refused to answer. And then he later came back and said, okay, okay, I have an answer. I would vote for a woman of color, which is which is not, so he didn't actually name it, anyone. And he wouldn't say which one. And, and that was, the that was Sabina Matos gave a similar answer. She said she'd vote for one of the other women, but she needs to see a poll. And so it was just a fun part of the debate that I actually think was informative. These are people who are uh, yelling at each other at, at points and attacking each other, but they also have respect for each other's views, and you can see who they best align with. Thank you, Steph. Thanks, Ed. One footnote at a debate this week at Rhode Island College, Aaron Regenberg walked back his statement about the red box on his website. He said he was too definitive in his denial in the debate last week. For more on the CD1 race, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.